Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, Don. How are you? Fantastic. How are you? J.J., yes. opening question. Okay. Have you ever almost drowned in whitewater? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> you have? I have. We both have stories. <laughs> because that's that, where the interview is going. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Almost drowned is strong for me, but I almost drowned one of the kids that I took on a whitewater trip. <laughs> <laughs> so you almost drowned when you said that, else. it's like it, I felt it. Yeah, I almost drowned. His, I, his name was you got Corey. Really excited thinking I, about almost drowning. A well, kid. It, <laughs> well, it's because I didn't know that question was coming. I'm like, yes, I have a story, but it actually wasn't. I mean, yes, I fell out and felt like I was going to drown, but one of the kids I took on a whitewater trip. Fell out and got stuck in rocks underneath. Ah, yeah. <laughs> you got him out? Did you save his I life? Didn't. I somebody ran, did get yeah, him out. Somebody got him out. So he didn't drown. He almost didn't live when I took him to an alligator farm. But that's another story. That that's is not another about, story. Yeah. That's next week's interview. <laughs> but let's go back to whitewater. Speaking of whitewater, <laughs> <laughs> whitewater. Little do you know, we're going to interview a guy named David McEwen. Yeah. On this episode of the podcast, his dad Les McEwen wrote a book called Predictable Success. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing: he says there are stages of business growth. Yes. And one of them is called. Whitewater. <laughs> Genius transition. Genius transition that I think you It's just a did, fantastic but... interview, and here's yeah. why you're going to love it, because dude is Scottish, Yeah, and it's like sitting there talking to <laughs> Braveheart. Yes. It's really one of my favorite interviews we've done, Yeah, he's... and we caught him live in Phoenix and got a recording, and, and he's great. Yeah, what I loved about it You is, heard it already. Yeah, I heard it, and what I loved about it is the sense of, I think when anybody goes out and gets ready to start a new venture, when you're ready to start a new business, you yeah. go, you in your mind, you you go, this is going to be hard. I know this is going to be hard. And then when it gets hard or you go through a certain stage that's difficult of growth or you some mistakes even, you go, oh, I'm doing it wrong. Like you all of a sudden start to doubt yourself and go through some real struggles. And he says that these stages are actually really natural. Yeah, that was comforting to me. We talked about this, that it's comforting to know, oh, this is normal. Yeah. And we get a lot of people, it's interesting because we get a lot of people calling us and saying, you know, I doubled my revenue or I grew my business after going to StoryBrand. And- I don't have the heart to tell them <laughs> about hiring and firing and HR problems yeah. and you're going to have to hire Whitewater a lawyer. Is and you're, Whitewater is coming. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to have to process this you thing in, in order to scale up. You will be in the mouth of hell. <laughs> anyway, speaking of independent film, yeah. have you seen this movie, The Baker That Wanted to Be a Spy? No. You have, have you heard of it? No. It is the best movie I've seen probably, I'm not exaggerating. Really? Ten years. Seriously? Yeah, the baker that wanted to be a spy. I haven't even heard of it. There's a gal named Svetlana, and she's a spy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she has to kill people. Okay. Because she's a spy. <laughs> of course. And she, so she's having to kill people, and she's over it. Okay. You know, we all get to this point where something's going on in our life, yeah, and we're kind of over it. So, we, so I'm, yeah, we're feeling for her mm-hmm. at this point. And she realizes, I never wanted to be a spy. I wanted to be a baker. Mm, okay. And something happens to her that is really very in my opinion, very beautiful. And she has an experience and it allows her to believe in herself enough that she can stop being a spy and actually actually be a baker. And it is, uh, this is Academy Awards stuff. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Why are you laughing? I guess, <laughs> it's a good movie. I'm looking at your face and I feel like you're trying to be serious about this, but I don't really know if it really is. Ser- like, what are you saying? I don't know what transition you're setting up next. I'm just telling you about a movie that like, I think is an amazing movie. And I'm saying, like anybody would, any friend to one friend, go see this movie. It's a good movie. That's uh-huh. all I'm doing here. Okay. I have a trailer for the movie. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and I would like to... I, I'm, I'm so... <laughs> I'm so amazed by this movie that uh-huh. I want to play this trailer for you and for our podcast audience because okay. this is the best movie in 10 years. Okay. Did you see Beauty and the Beast? I did. Pure crap <laughs> compared to this to this film. So, uh, Chad, our producer's here. Chad, would you just roll the trailer? Hey, do you have a I box? I can't of, wait. You need a box of Kleenex. Okay. You'll be okay. okay. We'll be okay. We'll okay. Make, get through it together. Chad, can you play this? She's been raised to trust no one. And remember, my daughter, trust no one. She's been trained in the art of deadly. Ah! You're strangling my neck to death! But nothing is more dangerous than a double agent's midlife crisis. I never wanted to kill for a living. I only wanted to open a bakery. The spy who wanted to be a baker. You see blood on my hands? I see raspberry filling. I want to break bread, not bones. I want to choke icing bags onto cakes. Then Svetlana read a book called Building a Story Brand that helped her clarify her message so customers would listen. This book has set me free. Anybody can grow business using these amazing techniques. And now she owns the finest bakery in Vladivostok. Another pierogi, please? You love them, don't you? (laughs) Because they are the best. They're good. I wouldn't necessarily call them the best. What great thing will happen to you after reading Building a Story Brand? Available October 10th. Next customer, please. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I told you. <laughs> I told, you just went Russian. <laughs> oh, that's a, does Scarlett Johansson play the baker? Because I really want her to play the baker. Oh my gosh, I want to see that so bad. <laughs> oh, well now I kind of feel bad a little bit. I mean, it is a movie. It is, is an actual movie. It, but uh, is it? Because I'm ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's very. It's like in a theater in Brooklyn. It's not. It's, <laughs> not, it's like, too cool it's to really be advertised. So it's a. Oh. I actually really but love that. What movie. so happens is uh-huh. the the character does read my new book. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have a new book. I know. And yay. All of this story brand stuff, all the principles that we've been teaching. Yeah. These thousands of business leaders that has called their business growth are in this book. Yeah, and this is the first time we're actually really announcing that it's going to be coming out. We're excited about it. Yes. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, and I'm really stoked. We've been working on this. JJ, you've helped so much. It's really a good thing. Yeah. And you get the book, and there's actually a software component. Like, you, you log on, you can do your online brand script. Yeah. And it's really cool. But here's the deal. You can't get the book till October 10th, just like it said in the movie trailer. Uh-huh. It was nice of them <laughs> yeah, to, to also promote the yep. book in the movie trailer. Because they, they do have a movie to sell. But anyway, you get the book October 10th. And people probably don't want to pre-order a book and wait five months to get the book. So yeah. here is the deal that we worked out with the publisher. Publisher print something called an advanced reader's copy. It's a paperback version of the actual book, a really nice quality paperback version yeah. that they usually send to the press. They'll send it like Good Morning America and the Today Show and New York yeah. Times and all this stuff. And that's because those people are five months out from picking who their guests are. Yeah. We convinced them to print an additional thousand copies of the book Yay! to give to you, listeners of the Building a Story oh, Brand podcast. So cool. It's really exclusive, but there's a thousand. So there's enough that you can grab one. Yeah. But here's how you do it. Go on to Amazon.com, go on to BarnesandNoble.com. You want to look for Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller. When you get the receipt, forward that receipt 
to book at storybrand.com. Forward your receipt to book at storybrand.com, and we will mail you an advanced reader's copy right away. So cool. Yeah, so you get the physical paperback New York Times version, you know, press version now, yeah. which most of us don't have access to. And you get the hardback version, October 10th, for the same price. So cool. It's one price, and you get both books. So that's it. You know, the book has been a long time coming. We've taken thousands of people through this process. It works. And now you can get the process in book form. The only way to do it, order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. When you get the receipt, hit forward, book at storybrand.com. You don't have to do anything else. The email that you get in response will prompt you to put in your address, and you got a book coming. So cool. And you'll get to read it five months before anybody else. I'm really excited. JJ, thanks. And and we do have to go to Brooklyn to see this movie. Yeah, really, it's just the, best. It's the best. It's yes. the best movie. <laughs> when she reads the book and there's tears in her eyes, and she's oh. like, I don't have to kill anybody anymore. Really a special I can't moment. wait. All right, with that, we should probably get back to Whitewater. <laughs> and my interview with David McEwen, I was able to sit down with him in Phoenix. Mm. He was he doesn't live in Phoenix, but he was there, and we sat down and had a terrific conversation about the stages of a company growth. And you know, if you go through StoryBrand, most people go through, they make some changes, and their company starts growing. Yeah. But then they get into trouble because growth is not easy. Yeah. And David explains the phases of growth and how to get through them. Here's my interview with David McEwen. David McEwen, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Earlier today, you sat me down and you walked me through the stages of business success and potential failure. I did. And right from the startup phase, you know, we're just getting started through the fun phase into the first whitewater. I felt it. I mean, I, I remember that. I remember that. Oh, that's where we are right now. And you have tools to get through some of the tension. I mean, you really argue that business has these phases of completely fun, euphoric times and tense times, and we all do it. And sometimes the tense times that we are in are the product of our success because we have to go through this level of the atmosphere. And you guys have figured something out. So you and your dad do this, right? Yeah. So dad started the business about 20 years ago. He was essentially a, an inherently lazy person. And through his <laughs> his career, he just took furious notes about what it was that made businesses successful and what made them fail. And ultimately came up with uh, what we call the predictable success model. So he was seeing this. 20 years ago, he was going, man, I'm just seeing this in every business that I look at. Yeah. He started off his career as a serial entrepreneur. He launched, I think, 41 companies by the time he was 36, which is Holy about 40 mackerel. companies more than anybody with a sane brain would start. And so he started to see the patterns of what made early stage businesses succeed. And then he developed in his career to essentially put together the consulting company that is today to not only help businesses launch, but help them to get to true scalability. So you, you, your dad's got the IP. He came with this thing and you're looking at it going, more people need this. He's, <laughs> he's, he's like me. He's in the backyard in the riding shed in the <laughs> yeah. laboratory with yeah. beakers. And then you're going, dad, we can pack this. People need this. Yeah, yeah, we can sell this. And so I joined him about four years ago with the explicit goal of building a business out of it so that he didn't have to be the one that was going and speaking and consulting on it. Yeah. Uh, and so flash forward four years, we've got a small team and a couple of consultants that go and deliver this for us. All right. Well, JJ and I talked about it in the introduction. It's all about predictable success. And the idea is that you can actually predict success. You can predict what's going to happen 
And if you don't do some things at some of these phases, you're going to crash. Predictable success is essentially about getting to the point where you've got the perfect balance between creativity and innovation and the systems and processes that you need for scalability. Right. Um, so it's not necessarily that you can predict the success that you will have, but that success comes to you predictably because you you, okay. you're, not, you're not having to make it up as you go along. It's all about ensuring that you've got that right balance. All right, David, walk me through the path from the early struggle. Sure. Like what is the path? all the way through my kids are going to inherit this company or I'm going to sell it. So, <laughs> so we teach the life cycle that there are seven stages that any business goes through regardless of industry or geography. Four of them are somewhat problematic and three of them are, are a little better. All starts off in the, the initial startup phase that we call early struggle. Early struggle is all about a pursuit for a uh, profitable, sustainable market. So we spend the first couple of years just figuring out whether what we have is viable. Only about one in every five organizations make it through early struggle. But wow. if you make it through early struggle, you get into uh, you alluded to it, the highly technical term uh, stage of growth that we call fun. And yeah. fun is fun because it's not early struggle. Early yeah. struggle is a lot like waking up every morning and finding the sharpest corner in your room and just banging your head uh, relentlessly <laughs> against it um, because you've got pressure. Literally, you're just trying to figure out how you're to make the to product out. work. You're trying to figure out how to finance it. You owe the bank money if you went into debt. Right. Owe all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and God plays this horrible trick on you when you're in early struggle. When you wake up for the first 30 seconds to two minutes, everything seems great. You know, the birds are chirping, the sun's coming through the blinds and then you realize I've got to make payroll on Thursday I've got to pay, right. a, pay a vendor or, or, or a provider and so when we get through uh, that stage we've found our profitable sustainable market fun is all about mining the profitable sustainable market it seems like fun transitions when there's a little more money in the bank at the end of the month than there was at the beginning, which is a transition. Yeah, that's the business. transition yeah. period. Yeah, yeah. All, all of a sudden you, you remember, well, hey, I don't need to write another check this month to get us through. But you know, we've got some recurring revenue coming in. We've yeah. got we've got a market rather than a series of customers. Yeah. It lifts that pressure a little bit. Okay. Um, but our, our market share is so small that we're able to post double or triple digit growth in fun year on year because one more sale doubles our revenue. Yeah, all these statistics. And, we 100 percent growth this year. Right, well, right. you made eight. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. And th th there's a key thing that makes all of this happen. When you look at uh, most successful businesses, they're typically started by one person that we give the title to a visionary. So very highly entrepreneurial, very long-term thinking, creative, real need for risk, you know, high risk profile, very charismatic, good communicators. Most successful businesses are started by a visionary. They have a resilience that gets it through the early struggle. Yeah, they're not going to stop. They're not going to stop. They're going to achieve their goal. And then actually what um, typically happens is most visionaries, they're really good starters, but they love to chase shiny new objects or bouncy balls, and they've got a tendency to be really distracted, and they're not so good at grinding through the details. And so most visionaries, although they won't use this vocabulary, team up with initially one or more operators, and operators are just folks that get stuff done. They just go through walls to see the visionary's vision come to life. Um, you know, Operators are like the MacGyver of the business. You give them a problem to solve, and two poached eggs and a bit of string and, a, and an elastic band and they'll confab a solution. It won't be pretty, but you'll get the job done. Yeah, Tim you know? and I are sitting here in the studio having an awkward moment. <laughs> a bit of a visionary <laughs> operator. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all there. But, but, it, but it's a hugely symbiotic relationship. Yeah. And, and, oh, it and, works. And, and through fun, the visionary operator team, you end up finishing each other's sentences because you yeah. just know where you're going. Mm. Let me tell you the next phase in the growth of my business and you tell me what it's called. Right. You get to this point where... 
you're growing, everybody wants your thing, and then you realize, okay, this other segment wants it, but I don't really know a lot about that segment, so I'm going to bring this person in who's only half done that before. Now we're moving into this segment, but it's pretty clear we're not doing it right. right. There must be some process here that I don't know about, but I'm not in my shed writing anymore because I'm trying to figure out this thing I don't understand. Right. And when we're getting feedback on, well, you guys do it really differently. No, normal companies do it this way. And then I go to the guy I hired, why are you like a normal company? He's like, well, I've never worked at a normal company. You brought me on. That, what right. is that called? The thing is, in fun, our favorite word to say is yes, right? So a customer right. calls up and says, hey, can I have this? And you would just say yes. We don't even hear what they say. And then we figure out how to make that up later on. And that's okay whenever we're in fun because we're able to deliver consistent quality in the face of relative simplicity. Right. The visionary operator team are able to do that. But as we add more product lines, more service lines, more people, if we open more offices, we just start to add layers of complexity into the business. It mm. just accretes over time. And like the proverbial frog in lukewarm water, you turn the temperature up one degree at a time. The frog doesn't realize that they're essentially boiling to death and will one day just die. What does death look like for the company here in this phase? If you right. don't do it, because you call this white water. Yeah, so we call it white water. And essentially, you know you're in white water whenever you've got a systemic issue with complexity. So you're starting to drop the ball. You know, you screw up a client order, you double book a meeting, or you send your trucks on the wrong route. And we realize that, hey, there's a problem with complexity here that, that we can no longer manage. It's like that old variety show act uh, where you're spinning plates, china plates on bamboo poles. Right. And the guy puts five up and he can manage them all. No problem. Just touch them and keep the plate spinning. Then he adds another five and another five and another five. And before you know it, the first plate's starting to shake and then it falls. And that sets a cascading effect. Whitewater's a lot like that. We're starting to drop the ball. We're having to fix things. As a result, our profitability plummets with a tendency at that stage to begin to lose alignment. Because Is the profitability plummeting because you hired a bunch of people to spin these plates and you never had a plan on how many people you needed to hire, what plates they were supposed but, to spin? Uh, part of that, but also if we're screwing things up for a customer, we're the ones that have to go and fix it. So we're, we're essentially spending money to fix right. the problems that are happening unless we're a law firm because whenever a law firm screws up you get to you get to build a client right <laughs> and so there's just this sense of we've just got this overwhelming complexity and the thing is in, when faced with complexity the, the answer is fairly simple we need some systems and processes yeah. and so for the first time in the organization's history we need to bring in a third uh, mindset a third leadership style that we call a processor at this point to date we've it's a person it's a person yeah is uh, this like a, an ops person? Who is it? can be. It's usually where we're feeling the tension the most. So sometimes it's in operations, sometimes it's in quality control, sometimes it's in accounting because we just need to get a handle on the numbers. So sometimes it can be IT. It's usually either somebody's elevated through the company or we bring somebody in and their sole job is to help us overcome the complexity that we have. How do you find somebody who can create the processes, inbound leads, outbound, you know, prospecting, and also the processes in budget. Are you talking about multiple processors that you're bringing in? Things are getting complex in multiple segments here. Right. And, and actually what it is, is at a senior leadership level, it's about just adopting the mindset that says in how we make decisions, we need to be more uh, processed here. Um, let me set some context for that. In fun, you think of the decision-making process, there's two stages of, of, of making a decision. There's making it and there's implementing it. Right. You know, in terms of 
made decisions. I've you know made a decision to lose thirty pounds, but in terms of implementing, I've got nowhere near it. There's right, two, two right, parts right, of that. Right. In fun, there's almost no uh, separation between the making and the implementation. It's almost the same thing. A board meeting's a ride up in an elevator. By the time you've got to the thirteenth floor, you've made yeah. three decisions. By lunchtime, so you're already stockholder to, meeting is lunch. Right? Yeah, you're starting yeah. to see progress on it. In Whitewater, when we're starting to drop the ball, we still have that synapse of making the decision quickly because that's that's how we grew the business and that's a very visionary operator mindset but implementation slows down almost to a crawl because we realize that we can't just make a decision over lunch we need to actually have some more people in the room uh, we need to get to actually spend some time looking at some data rather than just shooting from the hip we need to start to build implementation plans and accountability plans and communication plans and so the implementation part of it is just slows to, to death and the key to get through whitewater is to slow up the decision making process so we can get back to implementing it quickly. Mm. So it means just spending a little bit more time over the decision-making process to make sure we've got all of our ducks in a row to go out and implement. That's what the processor mindset does. Visionaries and operators just want to make decisions quickly and, and just implement it quickly. Whereas a processor will say, well, hold on a minute. Let's look at some of the underlying assumptions. Let's look at some of the data. Let's make sure that the decision that we're making is ultimately scalable. And that's what the processor brings. So to your point earlier, it's not in Whitewater that we're devoid of any processes at all in the organization. You know, we'll have our process for for leads. We'll have our process for how we deliver our product or our service. But for the first time, we've got to bring it up at a senior level. We're elevating it. Okay. How do I know when I'm getting through the whitewater phase? We went through fun and games. Right. You know, this is where StoryBrand is. We've been in whitewater here for about a year. We've created processes. Thankfully, all of our customer surveys are going well. We hit the brakes as soon as we thought we were getting into some complexity or figuring that out. How do I know, though, that this phase is not eternal, that we can begin to scale up. You'll know when you're in predictable success, which is the stage after Whitewater, it's the peak stage of development of an organization. You'll know when you're there, when you know that you can scale to whatever size the industry will allow you in the geographical region you want to play. So you know that it's just a matter of turning a spigot on and you've got the infrastructure to deal with right, that. Right, right, so, right, right. So a good example of that is you just think of a mom and pop opening a coffee shop. You know, they open this really cool artisanal coffee shop. We sell great coffee from Guatemala and wonderful food and everybody loves it. Quality's great. It's fantastic. Um, mom and pop is a very typical subset of a visionary operator relationship. You know, you've got pop out there glad handing everybody doing the big visionary thing and mom's making sure that we've got enough cheese that the till's counted and we've got enough people to staff mom and pop decide hey we're going to open another store open another one you know in the same town everything's still great everybody really likes it we open another one one town over things start to get a little iffy it's yeah. it's just the quality starts to dip a little bit we open a fourth store and it just collapses in on itself because we've got no infrastructure to support the growth and mom and pop are trying to do what most organizations do in fun which is we grow the business through acts of heroism. We're just always making diving catches to get the ball. That's how we grow in fun. And mom and pop have a decision to make at that point. Either we go back to, say, two stores and we stay in fun. We just have this nice lifestyle business. And that's a great choice, perfectly valid, good, you know, there's no moral judgment around that. But if they want to be, you know, a regional Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, they have to go through Whitewater. They have to build some enterprise-wide systems and processes to allow them to scale. And, and, you know, for them, and that example is probably, you know, bulk purchasing and putting together probably general managers for their stores and and developing a, a formalized training program for the baristas so that, you know, 
know you're going to get the same cup of coffee every time. That's what they would need to go through. That can take years. How long can that take? Well, for most organizations in the wild, it typically takes about two to four years to get through whitewater. And you're growing the whole time. And that's you're still growing. You're still growing. And that's the problem. Being in whitewater is a lot like being at the pilot of a a plane and you know that the landing gear is broken. And you're sitting there, you say to the colleague, you're like, if we can just land this plane, we can fix the landing gear. But the reality is you, you can't do that because you got you got you got to fix the landing gear whilst you're in the air. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing about tackling whitewater. Okay. So if we get through that, right. then we're into predictable, predictable success, success, which is the goal. Yeah, that's where you want to get to. And you want to stay in predictable success. We're going to get to the demise of sure. predictable success here in a minute. But what does predictable success look like? So predictable success is, is all about a balance between the visionary and the creativity that grew the business in the early days and the systems and processes that allow for repeatability and scalability. And, and I want to be clear here, it's not necessarily about size. You can have an organization of 10 or 15 people and be in predictable success. Or you can have an, an organization yep. of 18,000 people and be in predictable success. It's not about size. It's about the ability to scale. But being in predictable success, unlike the human aging process, you're not destined to decline. You don't have to die. If you make the right decisions, you can stay in predictable success for as long as you do that. In fact, by our reckoning, a GE was in predictable success for about 17 years under Jack yeah. Welch. Yeah. Uh, they just had that right balance. Yeah. What does, this is a selfish question, what does the visionary leader do in predictable success? Well, I mean, I realize everybody's different and you even know, you understand the different leadership styles and you guys have a whole book on that. Uh But the visionary leader who built this thing through fun and games, then they brought in the processor help. They can't act the same as they did in Mm -hmm. fun and games. You can't pivot the company on a dime. You can't change things over lunch. What does the visionary leader do? How do they contribute to the company? Sure. So there, there are a couple of things. In the early stages of growth, most visionary leaders have two modes. I'm either here and I'm in charge or I'm not here at all. Uh, and a lot of times visionaries, what they think is by me being here and heading for the fences and, and needing to take the riskiest route and brainstorm everything, they think hey, I'm not contributing to my team, so I'm just going to step right. away. But yeah. they can't do that. So they still are the visionary. They're still leading the charge of where we're going. But when we're in a meeting, typical visionary trait, they think that things should happen seven times faster than they really do. So if, if a visionary says, do you come here? This will take an hour. You know that there's probably about a day's worth of work there. What they're saying to you is, I'm going to give you an hour of my discretionary time and then you need to figure out the rest. And so visionaries need to learn to be a peer and say, I'm going to grind through the details with you. Number one thing they need to do in predictable success. The second thing that they need to do is really important because it prevents the decline of the organization. When you're in predictable success, if you lose the vision of the business, which is typically still personified in a person, think Steve Jobs, think Michael Dell, right, right. think Howard Schultz. If they go, the vision walks with them and that leads to decline. What you want to do, your sole goal as a visionary leader, particularly founder owner in predictable success, is to make sure that you start to institutionalize your vision into the organization. So that means mentoring, coaching people, not just one layer down, but two layers down and making sure that you're over communicating a really crystal clear uh, vision. I love that word over communicating. And we're starting to see in real time whether or not Steve Jobs did that at Apple with what's going on in, the, in their senior Whether people the are still living on that, the, the, the chorus, the refrain of his vision. Uh-huh. Whether, so Steve Jobs was very, it presented himself very much as the outward facing visionary leader of Apple. And when he first left Apple, the vision went with him and they tanked right under Scully, they tanked. They brought him back in and the vision was re-injected again. 
I think what he did in his latter years, and I think he learned it at Pixar actually, was he spent time institutionalizing his vision. So, so instead of the vision being personified in Steve Jobs, there were visionary components, smaller visionaries within Apple. So you look at Johnny Ive and some of the other folks in the team. I think that Steve Jobs tried to, he understood and recognized that if I want to build a company that outlasts myself, which is what he said to Isaacson in some of the interviews for the biography, he had to spend time and driving that down into the organization. So mentoring and coaching people, sharing and repeating what, a, and repeating it and repeating it and repeating it and over and over. And and when we say that when you're a visionary leader in predictable success, you need to over communicate the vision to the point where you start to feel physically sick because you've said it so many times. Man, I learned that just this year. Right. We would start every wig session because we run a 40x system. I'd start everyone with, here's the four quarters of this year. Right. We're going to do this. Then three months later, we're going to do this. Then three months later, right. you know, all the way through the first quarter. And I thought, these people are going to think I'm, right. I, th- I think they're stupid. Right. Right. But then I skipped it once. And I think Tim looked at me and said, excuse me, what are the four things that we're going <laughs> to right. like, We will forget. Right. And, you know, this team will forget unless you say it again. Right. It's only until we start to feel physically sick about it that they're actually starting to get it. But David, you know? I'm telling you, the advice that you're giving, I lived it and it empowers the organization. Oh, absolutely. It gives passion and vision and direction and people know why they're showing up for work. Right. You got to do it. And you got to do it. And, and one of the other key signs of being in predictable success is you know that people give their discretionary effort to move the business forward. Right. There's, there's a high degree of ownership and self-accountability. People either either rent their job or they own their job. And if you rent your job, you know it's the same as if you rent a house. If the plumbing breaks, the first thing you're going to do is call a landlord. If you right. own your house and the plumbing breaks down, the first thing you're going to do is either hire a plumber or try and you know get under the sink and fix it yourself. And you want to have a huge amount of ownership. You want people to own their job. And that's a key indicator that you're in predictable success. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with David McEwen in just a moment. Well, we're back with our Marketing Mythbusters section, and Kula Callahan is joining us. Kula is one of our facilitators. She travels all over the country and meets with companies and helps them clarify their message through our one-and-a-half-day process. So she's worked with all sorts of companies. She's seen all sorts of websites. She's seen all sorts of marketing collateral. That is a complete waste of money. And why? It's because these companies believe in marketing myths, and you're here to bust them. I'm here to bust them. Welcome back. Thank you. What is this week's marketing myth? People buy the best product or service. Don't they? Wrong. (laughs) I need an air horn. (laughs) We're going to have to give you one. (laughs) Of course, everybody wants the best. Are you telling me? I'm looking at a battery right now. For some reason, there's a battery on my desk. If this battery will last three hours and an inferior battery will last two hours, I will always buy this battery, won't I? No, you won't, Don. Why not? Well, if you did, it wouldn't be because of the battery. It would be because the battery communicated the clearest and the fastest. That battery company, you mean? Their marketing collateral? That battery company, yes. (laughs) So they actually had very clear communication that convinced me to buy the inferior battery. And I bought the inferior battery instead of the good one because the good battery... Whoever runs that marketing program didn't know how to communicate clearly, and they didn't sell me the battery. And people buy the product or service that they can understand the fastest. So what does this mean for the people listening? It means that it's less important to talk about the features of your product or how cutting edge the technology is, and it's more important to communicate very clearly in a very short amount of time how your product benefits the customer. Okay, can I give you an example? Yes. Because I've been speaking a lot lately, and I'll, I'll test this, and I'll say to the audience... What did Jeb Bush want to do with America? And I always get crickets. 
And it's not because he wasn't an intelligent man or wouldn't have been a great president and all that kind of stuff. He was my guy for a long time. And then I say, what does Donald Trump want to do with America? And everybody says, make America great again. And then I say, who's the president? Nobody expected this guy to become president, but he communicated the clearest. Now, this is no excuse. We should have the best product or service on the market, but you've got to figure out your message and make it really clear, or that message will not stick, will not be repeated, and you will not sell product. Is that right? That's right, Dunn. So the main reason why this myth is being busted today is so our listeners know this. If you can communicate that you solve someone's problem quicker than your competition, you will win. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. It's a race for the right words. But it's also true. It is true. And that's why it's really important that you don't fall victim to that myth. And here's what's amazing. Company after company is going to take their message over to a designer who has a degree in Photoshop or a degree in design or whatever and has never once studied words. And they're going to pay that person to lay out their website. and that, Or they're going to write the words and give it to the designer. And they've never studied how to write words that sell, how to clarify a message. And so they're not going to sell stuff. I, their I, website's going to look pretty, though. Yeah, their website's going to be pretty. It's not going to make any money. Yeah, but it's not going to make money. It's not going to make money. You're going to get beat by the competition. People buy things because they understand a message, they understand why it matters to them, and they understand why they need that product. I think it's absolutely true. Very good myth to bust. Thank you. If you want more marketing tips, if you want to know, okay, I've got to clarify my message. I need to get things honed in so that customers actually listen. I've got a free resource for you. It's at five minute marketing makeover.com. There are three five minute videos that you can watch. And each of them contain tips that will help you clarify your message so you won't get beat by the competition and so that you will sell more products. Go to 5MinuteMarketingMakeover.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Kula. See you next week. Well, hopefully everybody listening to this will stay in predictable success. We'll get there Mm. and then stay there. However, some people who are not listening to this podcast may experience something different, and that's (laughs) the beginning of a decline, and you call that the treadmill. At least the first part of decline is the treadmill. Uh How do you get into the treadmill? What does the treadmill feel like? As we said earlier, you can stay in predictable success for as long as you continue to do the right things. The reality is, now that we've introduced the concept of high-level processes into our decision-making process, and it was a tough thing and it was a hard thing to get right, but it ultimately brought us something good, which was scalability. We have a tendency to then overcook it. And so there's a natural pool to put just another level of process in place, little belt and braces, mm-hmm. make sure there's a little redundancy in the system. And when you do that, you run the risk of tipping into the first of the decline stages, as you mentioned, that we call treadmill. Treadmill is just the mirror opposite of whitewater. In whitewater, we're under-processed for the first time in our existence for the need of the business. In treadmill, we're over-processed. So we're a little bureaucratic, we're a little arthritic, a form becomes more important than function. Completing a checklist becomes more important than what the checklist is supposed to do Or even do thinking us. about the checklist or why we would do it this way or analyzing it. No, this is my job. I'm supposed to check these things off. Right. Yeah. And we start to talk about compliance quite a lot. You know, is our website HTML5 compliant? Whatever that means versus does it give some our customers a really good yeah, right, experience, right. right? And so we're just a little more bureaucratic, a little more arthritic. But the good thing about being in treadmill is it's still a natural stage of development. We can still self-diagnose. Somebody can put their hand up and say, hey, this is a little crazy. We're turning this into a bureaucracy, essentially. Yeah. Uh, usually it's the visionary that puts their hand up and says, hey, this is, this, guys, this is a little crazy here. This is United Airlines. Uh, yeah, the whole airline industry is in treadmill. It's a hugely over-processed industry. When was the last time a gate agent did anything that was outside of the books? You know, it's very hard. Outside of Southwest Airlines, yeah. you don't see it a lot. And, I mean, and, some airlines are better than others, but I know that 
you know, right before and during United and Continental's merger. Yep. It felt like the executives were focusing on necessarily, probably, not to throw them under the bus. Right. We're focusing on some really important stuff to keep this thing alive while they're doing a, right. a Herculean task. And it got to the point where, you know, the United flight attendants and gate workers were clearly going through motions. There was no passion. They, right. it, they were clearly, it felt like they weren't cared about. And I think things are changing a little bit, but were they in treadmill mode? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the, the thing is, the industry as well, interesting thing to note is industries go through their own life cycle. Mm-hmm. And so the gravitational pull of where the industry is pulls other organizations there. You know, you look at the airline industry because it's dealing with people and there's a lot of safety concerns. Yeah, it's a there's, process the, organization it, anyway. It, it has, has to, to be. be it has nature. to be, right? Yeah. But there is room for organizations to be more innovative and creative within, within there. Um, Southwest is a good example for a period of time. JetBlue were there as well, you can still be innovative and be in predictable success in a treadmill industry, but the gravitational pull, it pulls you, you got to fight against that. Right. There's a zero-sum game between vision and process. If my entire job can be reduced to a manual, I have no room for vision. Uh, none. I got to right. follow the process. And similarly, if, if everything that we do is just, we, we're just starting from scratch and, and reinventing things and being creative, we've got no room for process. So it's sort of a zero-sum game. And in treadmill industries, there's a tendency for organizations to pull towards the over-processed side of things. What does it look like to fight against it? What's a practical tool to fight against over-processing the organization? Just do you fire all the processors? Yeah, yeah. Just just go and just blow a bunch of stuff up. I mean, the the reality is you got to start to inject controlled risk taking and innovation. Give people a little bit of freedom within there, right? Yeah. And and where it actually starts is the hiring process because mm. in treadmill organizations we typically hire for plug and play. We hire people that are operators or processors. We don't want people to come in here with their crazy don't ideas. Think. Yeah, don't think and don't come in here with your crazy ideas. Most treadmill organizations need to start by retooling the hiring process process to hire people that have small amounts of vision in them that are going to you know bring some new innovative ideas and innovative solutions it's wow. just, you, you got to turn the tap on on the pool okay so sadly if, for people who are not listening some of them treadmill is going to take them down right and they're going to go into the big rut the big rut <laughs> is this a death spiral it is yes this, this does not end well <laughs> the thing about the big rut is that really the only difference between treadmill and the big rut is in treadmill we're over processed but we can self-diagnose in the big rut we're we're overprocessed, but we like it like that. Customers are a pain in the neck. You know, a really good example of an organization in the big rut, uh, you go to your local DMV or RMV to get your driver's license renewed, the one up the road where I live. There's literal footprints on the floor directing you to where you have to go to, and you walk up to a window and it says, please do not smile. And, you know, there's a good reason for it because they're about to take your photograph and you're not allowed to be smiling in your photograph, in, in the photograph of your license. But everything is just over-processed. And if you go outside of that, you know, you're going to have to go back home and fill out another form and book in another appointment. It's, so we're over-processed, but nobody really cares. Everybody's fine with it, you know, apart from the people that have to deal with it. Well, you could just unpack that for a second. Right. I mean, that, that is the DMV in my home state, right? Right. Now, they've done some innovative things where you can go to a kiosk and avoid right. the DMV. And there's you know, some really good stuff. But unpack the culture of that DMV where I go in and it takes me two and a half hours right. sitting there and everything is a process. Nobody is happy. You're not treated like a human being. The people right. behind the counter are not happy to be there. Right. And if they do it wrong, they're breaking the law. Right. Right. And right. they work for the governor. Right. right? Who can put people to death if he wants to. (laughs) (laughs) How did that happen? That is a rut organization, but it is 
funded by the government. This thing can't crash and burn. It won't crash and right. burn. I mean, Is that a rut organization that normally would go bankrupt, but if, because if they, would, they can't yeah. go bankrupt, they just, they're still alive? Yeah, 100%. If that was a, a for-profit corporation, eventually at, at some point... Well, if it was it, a for-profit, it would be gone. It would be gone, yeah. And, yeah. and, 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 and for-profit organizations that fall into the big rut will ultimately die. Because you cannot self-diagnose in a big rut, you can't come back. And also, the overarching infrastructure of process is so deep into the organization that even if you, you know, quite often people will say, well, what if you bring another visionary back in? Because usually, by the way, we didn't cover this, but by this stage, the visionary gone because they couldn't solve the treadmill issue. The and sometimes get booted out. Get booted They're trying out. Trying to bring crazy ideas, but you got over processors who just want right. systems. Right. And it, so, it, so I don't mean to keep interrupting you. Right. It's just fascinating, right? right? So Steve Jobs goes. Tim Cook takes over. Right. Bill Gates steps aside. Steve Ballmer yeah. takes over. These are not necessarily visionary leaders no. at the level of their predecessor. They are processors. And so usually there's a big boom right. when they go because they look at everything and they go, you know what? Let's have a garage sale. Right. We got all this great stuff. Let's keep doing this. Let's keep doing this. And yeah. the market changes. They never realize the market changes because they're not looking to the future. Yeah, 100%. So, the, so what happens is a little bit of a, of a climb followed by a decline. Yeah, absolutely. And the quality of materials, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and if you look at Balmer, I mean, Balmer was an, an operator out the wazoo. You don't get much more operator than Steve Balmer. He, he literally thought that he could just shout his way to continued success at Microsoft. <laughs> well, now he has a basketball team and he's uh, in the right spot. Uh, uh, right, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, if I, you know, if, if I made the mistakes that they did at Microsoft, I would be, I'd be happy enough. But Bill gets st stepped aside, the vision goes, Big O comes in, and they were just in the wilderness for years and years and years, and they certainly fell into treadmill, if not the big and they've now got Nadella in who clearly is visionary yeah. and, and what and he's, he's bringing it back he's trying to bring it back and what we'll see over the next number of years is to what degree the infrastructure of process in Microsoft was so deep and so wide that it'll ultimately resist that or is there the ability and the chance for him to bring that back and at this point you're steering the Titanic yeah oh you're, yeah this is a, this is not the same as you're not a startup anymore I can't no. imagine being a visionary in a place like oh, that. Oh, it's just it's a, it's a terrible place for them to be, and that's why most of them most of them leave, you know. Yeah. And and so that's the main reason why when you get into the big rut, you can't get out because the infrastructure is just so deep. It, you know, it's so deep seated that not that one individual can't do that. And so even in those organizations where they say, hey, let's bring another visionary in here to try and rescue this, the body rejects the organ. Hmm. It just gets chewed up and spat out because there's just such this overwhelming infrastructure. You know, I don't want to bring up too much politics, but this is what Trump what got himself uh, into. Everything that's happening in politics right now is on that. Um, is the kind of visionary leader who's used to predictable success getting into a machine that is all rules, all processes. Right. All checks and balances well, can't well, move the thing. Well, here's the thing: Trump's an arsonist visionary, and, and I'm arsonist not, visionary like he just burns, just, just burns things burn, behind just, him. Burn yeah. things up. And you look at at anything about the Trump organization. He's run, although it's worth a lot of money, run that organization in fun, very tightly knit group uh, for decision making. Uh, yeah, people are shocked when they go meet how small that group is. Right, and, and they're and mostly lawyers. Right, yeah, and so it's a very fun type of organization in how it's run. And his whole thing was, I can apply these principles to that, and it will work. And you're just seeing a huge rejection of the of an organ. And, and, yeah, and he's literally saying, if you put both oars in the water and you go back, the boat moves, you right, idiots. And right. then he gets in the Titanic and he can't reach the water with the oar. Right. That's the fascinating thing about all of it is it's got nothing to do with his political leanings. It's got nothing to do with his viewpoint on policy. It's just got everything to do with that organizations go through this. And yeah. it, when he can, gave him a 24-hour deadline to pass the health care bill, I thought this man has no idea what he's doing. Right. And that's just arsonist visionary 
shape in a big rut treadmill institution? I remember it because I'm an entrepreneur to the core, and I and I got somehow put on a presidential task force, and I was so excited. We were going to change things. Right. You know, flew the red eye to D.C., put on a suit at Dulles, went over to the White House, and I was like, are you serious? Right. This is how this works? Right. We're going to have an eight-hour meeting where we basically decide what we're going to have for lunch. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's yeah. what we're going to do. And so go, to, just go back to the decision-making that we talked about earlier, you know, in fun, it's fast decision-making, fast implementation. Mm-hmm. Uh, whitewater, the implementation slows down. When you're in predictable success, your decision-making process is slower, but your implementation is quick. And so there's an agility in predictable success because we can implement quickly. You know you're in treadmill or the big rut whenever it takes forever to make a decision, it takes forever to implement it. The redeeming quality here, because I don't want to throw every government worker on the bus <laughs> with it, is that it does take eight hours to decide what you're going to have for lunch. But at the end of the year... 23 million people have a different life because you slowly turn the boat around. Right, right. So patience is important right. in this. Okay. Well, once we're through the big rut. Nowhere but down. Nowhere but down. <laughs> the final stage is, ladies and gentlemen, and I love this. You guys are great narrative uh, storytellers here. The death, death rattle. The death rattle, yeah. <laughs> so when we're in the big rut, typically the visionaries left by this stage. Usually then all of the operators leave because operators need a visionary. They need vision. They need direction. And so they go, and that leaves us with the processors making sure we go bankrupt precisely on time. And so, you know, the we sell off our customer list. We sell off our assets. We sell off our patents. The business just ceases to be in in mm. the form that it was in. Just liquidate the thing. Just liquidate the thing. Sad but unbelievable example of an organization that's gone through this entire life cycle in the last 15 years is RIM, the maker of BlackBerry. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the 90s, they came out with this emailer machine and everyone was like, well, what is that? Kind of looks a little cool and funky. Started to get a little bit of traction. Then they went through their own whitewater internally, a whole bunch of server issues, which I'll not bore you with. They got into predictable success. They were in predictable success for about two minutes and then Apple- Really, that was it? It was just so quick because then Apple- But you remember, the time you, when I mean, every, everybody had a BlackBerry at one point or a trio. Uh, everybody had a BlackBerry at one point, but the moment in time was, was I mean, it was, really, it it was, was maybe six months or 12 yeah, months. The government every, held on to them for another five years. Right. Um, <laughs> and then Apple came in and, and basically changed the trend. The problem with RIM was they couldn't see past the need for a physical keyboard, a physical QWERTY keyboard. And even whenever Apple were outselling them and outperforming them with the iPhone, the executive still to that day said, Touchscreen will never take off. You need a QWERTY keyboard. It's an excellent book called, I think it's called Losing the Signal. And it's the history of RIM by BlackBerry. And I kid you not, as I was reading through it, you could have just named the chapters Early wow. Struggle, Fun, yeah. Whitewater Predict. I mean, they just went through it. such a classic example. Okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of a challenge here. There right. is a company that is in death rattle. There's not many that we can name right now right. who still are alive. Right. Sears. Oh, yeah. Uh They're there. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And a lot of other big players in that industry, in the retail industry, are are going that way quickly. Okay, David, play armchair quarterback. How do you... Is it even possible? Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. They're too far gone. Too far gone. Essentially, yeah, they own valuable real estate now. Yeah, and they'll either turn into just a real estate company and, right. or they'll just lease some the sort buildings. of, they'll lease that, and, and that'll be what they'll do, or they'll just sell the whole thing off. But no, they'll, they'll never be a retail store again, ever. No. Oh, you just can't bring that back? Cannot bring it back, now. All right. There you go. If you're in the big <laughs> rut and heading toward death rattle, get, get out. out of yeah, <laughs> get out, find something else to do, or so go down. I, you know, I have this, like, I don't know, delusional fantasy that Sears will call StoryBrand, and in six months, they'll be the And you'll save it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll totally save it. If you save it, 
come and find me, and I, I, you know, I would, I would be willing to bet the ocean that not possible. I, I, I actually would take on the challenge because it would be a blast. But here's the other thing: you could make a boatload of money doing that, right? Because organizations in the big rut typically have big reserves of cash because you make a lot, you make a lot of money in trade. Well, they're also high risk. Look at Kmart's "I Shipped My Pants" campaign. You only run a campaign like that if you're going bankrupt. Right. (laughs) You throw the hail mary. But hey, Patrick Doyle at uh, Domino's Pizza, 2007, 2008. I mean, that company is in a rut. Yep. They're not at death's row. No, they weren't that far gone. But they are in a rut. They're making bad product. And Patrick Doyle turned that thing around in 2009, 110%, 113% increase in shareholder value. Yep. 2009 CEO of the year. He turned it around. Yep, absolutely. And, and so if, if you're smelling death rattle here, there are ways to turn it around before we, you hit Well, the, the thing is he solved it. He pulled them back from treadmill. So he started... He never, they never were, they in, never, they they were w- in the rut. No. Just treadmill. Just treadmill, yeah. Over processes, blah, blah, right. blah. Uh-huh. Over process. And, and, and he, did start- it by, he did it with empathy, too. He started listening to the customers. He understood absolutely. their pain. Absolutely. And boy, what a success um, story. Same thing happened, though, with Starbucks. Howard Schultz. Same thing, yeah. He left in whatever year it was, and quality just tanked, but because they overexpanded, uh, return on asset was much more important than quality, and it just tanked. And he came back in, and, and they and didn't it, want him to come back in. There no, was a lot of pushback to him coming. So that crazy guy, r- r- is, you can't. He's, he's come, not going right. to fix this. He got us started. Right, exactly. But he's he not returned so, the he's, vision. He, he returned the vision, pulled him back, and then it's back to that. Did he institutionalize his vision? And he didn't. And so the reality is, he actually can't leave. Well, he can. He can well, do he's gone he can, in April. He, he can do whatever he wants, and we're going to see the same thing happen again. You think? It, yeah, you think uh, this next guy? Because he's got a lot of faith in this next guy. You think he's going to be able to put the vision down into the company like? I don't know enough about him to know whether he's got that vision. I hope so. Yeah. Because I like Schultz. I like Starbucks. I like what they've done in the world. And I hope it happens. The typical problem is most visionaries appoint an operator or a processor because it's... Because that's the guy they're comfortable with. It's the guy that they're comfortable with. And I think there's also a sort of an unspoken self-sabotaging thing, which is... (laughs) Come on, that's mean. Here's what it is. I built the business. I had the vision. It was mine, right? And I'm not going to bring somebody else in with something that's too crazy. How embarrassing would it be if if it doubled after I left? (laughs) Actually, I know. Now identify with that. Yeah, that would, be, that would be a little hard. This is fantastic. So if you're listening, where are you at with your organization? Your early struggle, fun, whitewater, predictable success, treadmill, the big rut, or if you're Sears. We could just call that Sears. Just call it Sears, <laughs> Sears territory. Death, yeah, the death rattle. You guys did some great research. You did some great work figuring this out. The book is Predictable Success. The website is PredictableSuccess.com. If you find yourself in one of these phases or if you find yourself going into one and want to avoid it, if you're going into treadmill, want to pull back, you're going into big rut, you got some work to do, these guys have done the research for you. And it's fantastic. Thank you. We're a year into Whitewater right now, and we're still having a blast, <laughs> but uh, I'm surrounded by processors. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, and that starts to make you feel a little sort of like hemmed yeah. in. Like, yeah, uh, exactly. What are the four phases of blowing my nose? I keep forgetting. Uh, right. right? Yeah. <laughs> Check that out. Uh, but it's necessary, and you've helped me believe we're on the right track. Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, we're still producing great quality stuff. So, That's cool. David McEwen, this has been a wonderful conversation. I feel like we could talk for another couple hours. Thanks so much for but having we gotta me. we got to go. We're at a retreat, and there's a pina colada waiting for us. <laughs> We're out of here. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. If anything, David McEwen sparked you, you said, okay, that's me. I've been there. You might want to download our worksheet about this podcast interview because David will help you predict what is about to happen and he'll help you get through it. 
Last thing you want to do is be surprised by some tense moment in your company where you just go, this isn't supposed to happen. All you need is this worksheet, and you can look at it, and you can go, no, this is exactly what's supposed to happen, and here's what I'm supposed to do now. The benefit to you is it could save you a lot of money, and it could also save you from a lot of headaches. Go to buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. That's buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. Pretty good, right? Yeah. Do you think you take him more seriously because of the Scottish accent? I think so, yes. <laughs> he sounds like a yes. warrior. He, he just was commands intense, respect. Yeah. He was kind of intense. Yeah. I mean, not in a bad way. He was like, he was yeah, like yeah. I want to help you get through, you know, I can't do it. I wish <laughs> I could do it. He just went to Arnold. <laughs> we got to break. <laughs> All right. Well, next week, another amazing interview. Yes. And this guy is heroic to yeah. me. He's one of the guys on my horizon that I look to and I say, okay, I, want, I just want to keep being like this guy. Yeah. And it's Ernie Johnson. From TNT Sports. Yep. So Ernie co-hosts Inside the NBA with Kenny Smith, Charles Barkley, Shaquille O'Neal is on there all the time. And Charles Barkley actually went into the Hall of Fame. And one of the things he said in his Hall of Fame speech was, Ernie Johnson is the greatest man that I know. Mm. And if you know Ernie, and I got to meet him about 10 years ago, and we've been friends since, if you get to know him, he is the greatest man yeah. you know. <laughs> and there are some reasons for that, and it would surprise you. He and Cheryl, his wife, the way they've adopted children, the situation those children have come from, the situation those children are in now, the sacrifice that this man makes as soon as they turn the cameras off. You will not believe what Ernie Johnson's life looks like the second they turn a camera off. And that's the reason that these co-hosts are looking at him going, this is the greatest man I know. Yeah. He's got a book out called Unscripted. And, of course, we want to promote the book. You know, I get a lot of books. And, you know, they go on my shelf. There's one book that sits kind of behind my monitor where I can see it. And it's Ernie's book. Hmm. And it's a good book, but that's not the reason it's there. It's because it reminds me every day I want to be like Ernie. Yeah. And he's an amazing guy. And next week's interview on the podcast is going to be beautiful. And if you're somebody who's trying to figure out work-life balance and you need a little help, yeah. <laughs> understanding what is meaningful in life. Yeah. This interview with Ernie Johnson is going to do it. Anyway, I want to play for you a little clip. Here's just a, a few seconds of my interview with Ernie Johnson. And I think when we get so tied up in what we are doing and we're going at such breakneck speed that you miss those moments where you can impact somebody's life. You know, I love the, I think it's the Ritz-Carlton. Wasn't the, the, the motto of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel when it began, ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen. Wow. And I try to remember that all the time. I want to serve. I don't want to be the, hey, I'm a TV guy. What are you going to do for me? You know, I'm, I want to be walking out the door after having served my boat in the morning and have my antenna up so that I notice the people who, who need to have somebody to talk to or notice them. So good. That's Next so, week. Yeah. JJ, this podcast is getting really good. Uh, it's fun. I love all of our guests. I know. They bring their hearts. Yeah. It's not a lot of business podcasts where no. it, it unfolds like that. <laughs> yes. Uh, but the amount of times I've cried listening to certain <laughs> interviews, especially Ernie's. Like when I listened to Ernie's, I was like, oh, man. Oh, the business interview makes me cry. Yeah. <laughs> I want to grow my... Yeah, it's, yeah, me too, man. Well, before we go, just a reminder, you can pre-order the Building a Story Brand book. Go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Forward your receipt to book at storybrand.com. And we will send you a physical copy of the book now, and you'll also get the hard copy on October 10th when it yeah. comes out. It's a special. It's only for a 1,000 people. If you're hearing my voice, you got a great shot at getting one, and you should do it. 
Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to avoid whitewater.